Hi, Nick Vince here. This week on the Chattering Hour, I'm joined by longtime collaborator with George A. Romero, writer, director, composer, musician, John Harrison. We talk about working on Romero's Day of the Dead and Creepshow, writing and directing Tales from the Dark Side on both TV and film, Clive Barker's Book of Blood, and the new Shudder TV series Creepshow. Up next on The Chattering Hour, John Harrison. John Harrison started his career directing rock videos and as the first assistant director on Romero's Day of the Dead and Creepshow, for which he also composed the scores. He wrote and directed the six-hour Emmy Award-winning adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune and wrote the sequel, Children of Dune. For Disney, he co-wrote the animated feature Dinosaur and on TV has written and directed episodes for Leverage, Profiler, Earth 2 and Tales from the Crypt. Oh, so much to cover, so let's get to it. John, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. It's my pleasure, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's good. Um, So I want to take us all the way back, if I may, because I believe you were born and brought up in Pittsburgh, is that right? I was, yeah. I was born and raised in Pittsburgh and lived there pretty much until I was 18, Uh, went off to college, uh, lived in a variety of places, uh, New York, Boston, uh, Central Pennsylvania. Um, then I moved back um, in the early 70s. I moved back to Pittsburgh, and uh, that became the uh, the beginning of my uh, sort of professional filmmaking career. I'd been right, doing right. things before that in uh, both college and all through my high school years. But uh, I was lucky enough to land in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh uh, in the early 70s, where there was a pretty serious independent filmmaking scene going on. And that included the big public television station, you know, sort of akin to BBC in America, the PBS station. And then um, there was a very uh, sophisticated video production house called TPC, which was into digital production and tape and, and uh, one of the early pioneers of a lot of that kind of work in advertising and commercials. And then, of course, there was George Romero. Right, which I wanted to come to a little bit later on, if I may, but I was kind of curious because you kind of started out in music more because you were touring with Roy Buchanan. Oh, yeah. Well, I had been a musician professionally most of my growing up. I mean, uh, all through high school, we had bands. Um, and in same thing in college and then right out of college, um, I formed a band with my, uh, the same people that I'd been playing with for years, my brother included. And, um, we were on the road for quite a while until I moved back to Pittsburgh. And, um, that's when I was deciding that I really wanted to put the filmmaking career in the forefront. But I got this opportunity to play with Roy. Uh, A good friend of mine was Roy's manager, uh, Jay Rich, and he asked me to join the band. And so I spent four years with Roy traveling the world and recording. And um, yeah, it was great. But that music background was wonderful because um, it allowed me to uh, jump in with George on film scores as well. So, you know, they've all kind of merged together, all this stuff that I do. So I'll, <laughs> I'll do anything for a buck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's called being an artist, really. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> when, how did you meet George? Well, I had put a small film production company together with two of my really dear friends, Dusty Nelson and Pat Booba. And um, we had a small production company to do. I mean, we were really impressed with what George had done. I had seen Night of the Living Dead when I was a student up in Boston. And I was so knocked out by the fact that here's a guy from Pittsburgh who could do this independent film and really make a powerful film. Um, 
we decided, well, hell, man, if he can do that, why can't we do that? So we started by doing commercials and industrials. And one day, my partner, Dusty Nelson, came in and, and put a newspaper on the desk. And he said, we got to call this guy. George and his partner then, Richard Rubenstein, had just signed a deal to do a series of sports documentaries called The Winners. And we had cameras and, and, and editing equipment and so forth. And we said, we should offer our services. So I called George's office expecting, and I've told this story many times because it's really funny and it's typical of George. I called his office to, um, to say, hey, man, we're, you know, we're in Pittsburgh. We're young filmmakers. We're hungry. We're aggressive. We want to do, we want to work in this business. Maybe we could help out. So I called the office expecting I'll get the secretary or I'll get one of his assistants. And sooner or later, it'll filter up the chain to George Romero, you know. But he answers the phone. <laughs> so I'm sitting there going, well, uh, what do I, you know, by George, my name is John Harrison, gave him my pitch. And he says, uh, well, where are you guys? And I says, uh, well, we're down on Smithfield Street, which was just about five blocks from where his offices were. He says, OK, I'll see you in five minutes. Click. He hangs up. Five minutes later, he, he ambles into our office, watches a few of our films. And in the middle of a short film that I directed called Ubu, he hits the stop button. He goes, okay, let's work together. And that was the start of it. Wow. Wow. I mean, that was the kind of guy it was. Right, right. What? So you, you mentioned the sports documentary. So which, fe which feature of his did you first work on? Well, let's see. He was... Um, he went he was he went from that right into Martin. And although we didn't provide production services on Martin, um George shot a lot of it at my partner Pat Booba's family home. That was where the vampire lived. And uh uh we weren't sort of uh, it, Pat's brother, Tony, worked on it a lot. And but you got to remember, in Pittsburgh in those days, the filmmaking community was really kind of, it was small. So everybody knew everybody. And everybody kind of cross-pollinated everybody else's projects. So we had a kind of a distant association with Martin, uh, which led right into Dawn of the Dead. Um, and uh, although we didn't work directly on that, again, Pat's wife was the production manager. I did a bit as the screwdriver zombie. Pat and his brother were in it. We were all in it. Right. Um, and my first professional, and so we just all became friends. We were always hanging out to, together, going to restaurants together, going to each other's houses, watching movies, getting drunk uh, <laughs> or high or whatever, um, was on offer. Uh, and then, uh, when, uh, creep show came along, I got a call to be his assistant director and that that started that. Okay. Because you'd also worked on his film night riders. Oh yeah. Well that became, um, a part of this three picture deal that he had with Salah Hassanin and UFD. Um, and, uh, yes, we were all associated with that in varying degrees. I, you know, I played a small part, Pat Booba, my partner became George's assistant director on that and was one of the editors with George on that. Um, and, uh, so, uh, like I say, it was a small community. And so when mm. a big project came along, we just kind of all intersected. Right, right, right. You you mentioned you, you've, got um the call to become first ad on creep show um before i know you also composed the score which you, you mentioned earlier on but before i mentioned that so as first director were you there when you were burying ted dance and, and galen ross oh yeah sand? <laughs> yeah we buried him pretty deep there <laughs> yeah that was down in new jersey we had uh, most of the production in a small high school that we had uh, that had gone bust or whatever, a private school outside of Pittsburgh. And we used that as our studio. We built all the sets there and so forth. But we had a couple of locations. In Father's Day, there was a, a house that we used for the big mansion where Bedelia lived. Um, the uh, Tide You Over uh, segment required us to be by the ocean, of course. So we decamped for... Um, New Jersey in a state park down there. And that's where we buried Ted. <laughs> I have to say, I find it one of the most disturbing. I think it is that 
thing of being. It, it is really, the idea of it is horrible. And, you know, it was interesting because um, when you bury somebody in sand, it becomes like cement. And so, I mean, we literally had a, a, an eight-foot hole that he was in, and he sat on some apple boxes. We had this collar around him which could then be filled with sand, you know, covered with sand. So it looked like he was, and the theory was that if he was in trouble, he could stand up. Right. And he'd be, you know, above whatever. Um, but when the water got wet, <laughs> it was so heavy, he never could have stood up. <laughs> uh, fortunately, we didn't drown him, of course, and he went on to have this remarkable career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But um, we buried him close to the to the uh, to the shoreline. But of course, we weren't going to let the tide come in and really go over him. So, this brilliant special effects guy named Ed Fountain, who is still to this day one of my dear friends, built this wave machine, which was a remarkable engineering thing of this big. Uh, how do I describe it? This big container of about four or five. Uh, sub containers that could each be released on cue and it was filled with water. And so the tide would come in a certain level, then you'd release another one and it would come in even further. And then you'd release another one, it'd come in even and go over his head. But once that sand got wet, boy, it was, it was like cement. Yeah. Yeah. It's the mere thought of actually being an actor in that situation. Cause I noticed when, um, Leslie Nielsen is pushing sand into his face and pretending to bury and I'm thinking, yeah, that's actually in his face and he's caught in his face. And the lobster, the lobster was right there and uh, was uh, we had to we had to be careful that it didn't yeah. sound like, oh, that eye looks really tasty. <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, poor Galen Ross at the other end of the TV feed going, oh, yeah. through, going through that. We, uh, we beat those guys up pretty bad, I'm afraid. <laughs> So, so when did George ask you to do the music or was it George or one of the producers asked you to do the music? No, no, it was George. I mean, uh, this is an interesting story. Again, I've told many times and it's, uh, but it is indicative of how George worked. You know, he, he was not a musician, but he had an incredible musical sense. And he also had one of the best uh, collections of uh, soundtracks that I'd ever seen LPs, you know, like, you know, just stacks and stacks of them. He loved movie music. And so he could hum along with what he had in mind. And, and um, he cut most of his early films with library tracks, um, what we used to call needle drops. And you would buy these things from Capitol library or uh, um, what was the other big one? There were, there were several and you could, you could buy a number of old tracks that they owned the copyrights to, you could license them for your film and then you could use them in your, in your film. And it was a cheaper way than, than hiring an orchestra and a composer. But George was so brilliant uh, because he could take two or three tracks and he would cut them up and splice them together and overlay them. And so out of two or three old scores, he would create something entirely new that would be better suited to the picture. So when we were going to do Creepshow, that was the idea, because Creepshow was a comic book, after all. And so he wanted to use that kind of style of old 50s harm movie music. But when we got some of the pieces in, um, some of the fidelity wasn't great, and it wouldn't lay up against the picture as easily as we wanted. Um, and I had some gear, and I said, well, look, maybe I can create some transitions here and there, and we can just fill in a little bit. We talked about it. Um, but then just one thing led to the next and I ended up scoring about 80% of the movie, 90% of the movie, uh, because George said, Oh, I like that thing. Why don't you do some more of that? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd go home and go sit at the piano, work out a few things, get the gear up, set it down, record it. Um, and then of course we did the whole formal production. I went into a studio and we recorded it, but that's kind of how that got started. Right. So were you composing whilst he was editing? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and But this was the other great thing, and this was also true of Day of the Dead. Um, you know, the traditional way of doing something is that you get a, a composer will get a cut um, from production. Um, depending on the relationship with the director, it could be as early as the first 
the first cuts, the rough cuts, or it could be as late as we're locked and we're going into this, we're going into the uh, mixing stage. Right. Um, and, you know, you have a period of time where you've got to compose and produce the score. Um, in this case, what was great is that I was sitting by George for the entire production because I was his assistant director. So we could talk about every scene that we were shooting. You know, like, well, what would be good here? What kind of, is this humorous? Is this really scary? Do we need a jump? Uh, do we need a sting at this moment? Uh, or do we want something romantic and really, you know, counter-program what's going on screen? You know, that kind of thing. So that was invaluable. Um, and while he was uh, doing the editing, uh, particularly on Day of the Dead, I could be downstairs in another room that they'd given me and have all my gear set up. And he could, he, you know, I'd, I'd see little v, uh, VCRs come through the mail slot. <laughs> and it would be a scene that he and Pat Booba had cut. And so I could put it in and I could look at it. I could temp some stuff and send it up back upstairs, you know, like in the, like the old department stores, you know, with those vacuum tubes that go <laughs> And then he would, and then I come back notes. Okay. I'll do some changes. <laughs> but what composers rarely have that luxury of sitting with the compose with, with the director through mm. uh, uh, all of post. But I, I was very lucky. So I, I consider George sort of the co-composer of all those scores. Right. Right. And, with, and did he invite you at the beginning of uh, day of the dead? to do, contribute the score. Oh yeah. Yeah. By then, because Creepshow was so successful um, and the score was uh, that uh, he wanted me to come back and be his assistant director again and, and then do the music. So um, in fact, I had in the early days of that production, when he had a much bigger script um, that uh, then became for budgetary reasons and ratings reasons cut down to the one that we actually did in the mines he had sent me the the uh, the script. Um, a lot of it was set in Florida and the Caribbean, and that's how I came up with that whole theme that's in Day of the Dead. So I'd actually written a few pieces for his approval before, way before we even started production. And then when they changed it and made it a much more uh, confined location, he still liked the idea of the theme, so we kept that. <sighs> I see. I see. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Now, what was it like filming in the big shopping mall? Well, I wasn't there for all of that, but um, right. I was there for some of it, but because as I say, the community was so small, we would talk about it. It was a very hard shoot. Um, uh, as much fun as they had, you know, they had to go in. I, I can't remember the exact hours, but they could probably, they couldn't start shooting until around 11 or 12 at night when the mall physically closed. Right. And then they had until seven or eight in the morning when the mall would open. So they had to do everything at night. So it was, uh, however many months of night shooting in the mall. <laughs> yeah. That's not good. That's, that's not good for anyone. Well, we were young. We were younger then. <laughs> So you then went on to do uh, Tales from the Dark Side, the TV series, and this is you both writing and directing? Yeah, that was a, a great opportunity. George and Richard Rubenstein had uh, sold the idea for, uh, you know, depending on, on which myth you listen to, um, it was supposed to be a series possibly that uh, was spawned by Creepshow, but there were rights issues and all kinds of other things. And so they decided, well, look, we'll just create our own called Tales from the Dark Side. And um, uh, they had two production companies, one in Los Angeles, one in uh, New York. And I had moved to Los Angeles by that time. And so they asked me yeah, to write. They knew I was I wanted to direct. And so they asked me to write and direct. Um, it was a marvelous opportunity because they were uh, making, we made little movies every week. It was not like a normal TV series. This was an anthology. So every story was its own little movie. And it was the best film school I ever went to. I never went to film school. I went to Tales from the Dark Side film school or the George Romero film school. I see. I see. So, how long did you have to shoot each segment then? <laughs> uh, 
Well, actually, it seems a luxury now. Uh, we had five days to shoot a half hour. Um, and, uh, you know, over time, television production has just, um, you know, you're lucky if you have an eight day schedule. I mean, some of the huge network shows or the big international shows, they'll get eight or 10, you know, the big action ones. But, uh, the average now is eight days, sometimes seven. Um, and, uh, so that's just the way it is. Uh, we had. It was low budget. It was really low budget. The director was the lowest paid person on the on the crew <laughs> because it wasn't a DGA show. It was and so they called it an honorarium. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, so uh, yeah, uh, but but hey, I would have done it for nothing. Sure, sure. Well, I was curious when you you're talking about writing, and I know you've written other things which we'll come to later on, such as Dune, but. Do you still write? Are you still writing? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all the time. I mean, I've actually been writing fiction a lot recently because um, as, uh, you know, I've, I've still, I still do television um, when asked. Um, and uh, I haven't done a movie since the movie I did for Clive, Clive Barker's right. film. Um, but uh, so I get... I get bored easily. So yeah, I write all the time. <laughs> right. Right. Do you listen to music whilst you write? No, I don't. Um, I know a lot of guys do. Um, I was talking to Josh Mallerman, who is the writer of bird box the other day, because right. I directed one of his uh, scripts for creep show. And he was telling me that when he wrote bird box, he was listening to creep show the entire time. And I know Steve King listens to music all the time. When he would be down in Pittsburgh working with George, we'd come into the office and he had been in there writing early and you'd hear this rock and roll blasting out of the room he was writing in. And I just can't do that. I, if, I, if music is playing, my mind just goes right over there. And I start listening to that and thinking about that as opposed to what I'm writing. I almost have to just get into my head by myself when I'm, when I'm writing. So I can't listen to music while I'm writing. Right, right, right. And as you mentioned, uh, Tales from the Crypt, you also wrote a couple of episodes of the Tales of the Crypt. Yes. Right? Yeah. I wrote a couple of those, um, directed a couple of those. Uh, that was when in the early nineties. And that yeah. was, that was great. Um, they were five day shoots too. We had quite a bit more money though. That was more of a Hollywood production. Um, yeah. I, I had a great time on Crypt. Right, because you, did you work with John Cassier in that case, the uh, voice? Well, I didn't. No, because he he was really kind of off camera. You know, right. he, that his whole segments were done uh, independently of the shows themselves. Ah. Um, so I never got a chance to work with John. No. Right, right, right. But I loved his. I loved his stick. <laughs> <laughs> I've had him as a guest on the show. He's oh, a yeah. fascinating. Yeah, he's a fascinating oh, yeah, yeah. guy. Really, really interesting guy. But then, okay, so this is the beginning of the 90s, but then in 2000, you wrote something huge, and that was Frank Herbert's Dune. How did that start? I mean, first off, when did you re first read Dune? Oh, I first read Dune in college, uh, maybe even my last year of high school. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Um, and... Uh, that and Asimov's Foundation trilogy were just like seminal. I mean, they were, you know, holy crap. Um, this is really, I was never a techie. I was never a hardware guy um, for space operas. I mean, yeah. I really, I loved the human drama of uh, the human condition in Herbert's work um, and Asimov's too. But um, mm. that was what really appealed to me about Doom. Um, I wouldn't have imagined ever being given that opportunity. But it just so happens that Richard Rubenstein that I had worked with with George for many years had his own company by then. Um, and he was looking for something to do and he'd had great success with Steve's books. Um, right. You know, he had done the stand Langoliers. Uh, what else had he done? Pet cemetery. Right. <clears throat> and he loved the idea of long form television. And so he was looking around for something to do. And the way he tells it to me is he was in his library and he was just looking at his bookshelf and he saw Dune on the shelf. 
And he said, I wonder if the television rights are available to this. He knew that De Laurentiis had the rights, but maybe television was available. And he pursued it. And sure enough, the television rights were available and he got it. And so he partnered up with ABC and um, they decided that they would do it as a television miniseries, which when I finally heard about that, I was really excited. I'd seen David Lynch's movie. There were things about it I really liked. Um, Gorgeous, beautiful. Mm so many Lynchian elements to it that you just kind of knock you back. I'd read things about Jodorowsky's efforts, um, but I never felt that um, all the filmed incarnations that Lynch or the producers were able to put together out of that material really captured what I remembered or what I loved about the narrative of that book about what Herbert was doing. So they were looking for a writer for this project. Richard called me up and said, look, I'm coming out to Los Angeles. Uh, would you be interested in pitching me how you would do Dune? I said, uh, let me think about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so um, he came out. We went to lunch at a, at a famous deli in, in uh, Los Angeles called Arts. And I sat him down and I pitched him how I would do it. And he went back to ABC. They liked the pitch and they hired me to write it. And, uh, and then directed. And um, I'll tell you, Nick, it was like, holy crap. First of all, what have I done? <laughs> and then it was like, what an opportunity. So how long did you actually spend working on it? The first one, uh, about six months. Um, because the pitch that I had essentially was, look, this book is broken into three sort of sub-novels. Um, Arrakis, uh, I forget the order, um, The Prophet, Muad'Dib, um, Arrakis. Mm. <clears throat> and each one of them is kind of a contained story about Paul Atreides' journey. The first part, leaving Arrakis and going to Dune. The second part is after his father is killed. He's exiled in the desert. He meets the Fremen. And the third part is about when he and the Fremen lead the revolution mm. and take over the kingdom. So I pitched it like that. I said, this book is too big. And the problem that I think that somebody like David Lynch or producers of the film have had uh, is to try and make it work in a two hour format or a two and a half hour format. There's too much material. Um, so let's do it as a mini series. And each of these sub books, if you will, chapters of mm. Dune is a night of television. And they loved that idea. Um, there were other parts to the pitch in terms of elevating the material. I didn't want to do it as a, a Babylon 5. I didn't want to do it. Uh, not the, not the uh, new one, but the old one. I didn't want to do it as a uh, – I wanted to do it almost with feature style. Mm. Um, and uh, we can talk about the production if you want at some point. And that's how we ended up with the, the team that I put together. But in terms of the, the writing and the development, um, it took about six months. I spent a lot of time rereading the book. And actually what I did was I would write my own version of the chapters of the book. I'd read, the, I'd read the, a chapter and then I would synopsize the chapter for myself. I'd write it again. Once I had done all of it, so I had it in my mind. Sure. Um, once I had done that, then I started working on the script and I went night by night and I guess that whole, you know, there was an outline and then a full screenplay. And I guess that, that whole process took about six months. Right. Maybe right. a little so, less. I, I can't remember. Right. Right. So then how long for the actual filming itself? Well, that took a little bit of time because then once they read my script, they said, Holy, <laughs> this is, is going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so um, then they had to raise the fun the financing and um, they got sci-fi on board the channel sci-fi channel in the US and then they went looking for a foreign partner and ended up with uh, Beta Taurus and Kirch Media out of Germany and um, so we had the funds so that took about another six months um, and in the meantime I was doing you know I had faith that they would put it together so I was doing pre-production I was 
looking for partners to work with cinematographers, production designers, <clears throat> coming up with visuals that I wanted to convey, um, thinking about possible casting. Um, so the, uh, the production took about another six months. Right. Right. And you filmed in Prague. We filmed in Prague. I did a, a, a recce with, um, the producers through North Africa, um, and, and, uh, into Europe to see if we could shoot it on location. Um, we did Morocco and Tunisia. Um, it became evident pretty much during all of that time that it was going to be a very on, on it, even though we had good money, it was a television budget. It wasn't a mm. hundred million dollars. Um, so we were going to be really up against it, uh, in terms of, um, time, shooting all day in a desert, um, overhead, you know, flat lighting from midday to end of day. So to give it any kind of character, that was going to be really tough. And then through my assistant director, who was a dear friend of mine, I met Vittorio Storaro, who wanted to meet me because he loved Dune. He at one point had talked had, uh, to Ridley Scott about being involved in that version in that incarnation of it. And, uh, that didn't happen. And he, uh, he wanted to, he wanted to do it. And so he pitched me the idea of doing it in a very theatrical way, um, which was to create the desert on a soundstage. So we had, we had toured Europe. We knew we were going to have sound stages and we went to uh, Budapest and, and Prague we didn't look at London because that was going to be too expensive. Um, but they have uh, Barendorf Studios in Prague are huge, are great studios. And so we decided we would shoot there. And um, Vittorio came up with the translite idea of creating desert landscapes on these massive translites that would go all around these studios, hundreds, 300 feet by 100 feet. But it was like, and the way he lit them. And so, uh, and I also had a, uh, a phenomenal production designer named Miljan Krakovich who um, could integrate those backgrounds with uh, massive sets uh, that we built on the soundstage. And so right. we did almost, we did the entire production on the sound stages of Prague. Wow. Well, um, how, how long were you filming for then? About six months. Another six months. Yeah. So about a year and a half in total, best part of two years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it won, it won Emmys. It was very successful financially. Um, the, the director's cut video still sells. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, obviously one of the ha proudest achievements of my right. career, such as it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty extraordinary career. But you then went on to write Children of Dune. Yeah. So when we were doing Dune and in post-production, I said to uh, uh, the producers, look, we should really, we should have the ready, the next one ready to go. He's, there were seven books in this series and um, uh, we should really be ready for the second miniseries because this is going to be successful. I guarantee it's going to be successful. Oh yeah, John. Yeah, we know, we know it's going to be successful, um, but we better wait and see how it turns out. And of course, um, it turned out that it was very successful. And then it was like, okay, how fast can we have the screenplay? And I, okay. So that one took a little bit less time. And I have to admit that I had been doing some prep and some notes and how I was going to do it. So I pitched them the idea of taking the next two books, which was Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, and combining them. Because Dune Messiah is, if you know the series, Dune Messiah is a relatively short novel. Right. Right. And it's really uh, the period of time when um, uh, Paul realizes that what he has started has, is starting to spiral out of control. Um, that him as the Muad'Dib and the religious fervor that's growing up around him is becoming a fanaticism. And um, so he's really desperate to kind of pull this back and can't do it. Um, and eventually abandons his role as the Muad'Dib and goes off into the desert. His children in Children of Dune then become 
And so I transitioned into that. That becomes the story of uh, Leto, young Leto, and right. um, his emergence as the Kwisatz Haderach and him going off into the right. desert, and right, then eventually right. becoming the God Emperor. So I pitched that idea of taking those two books together, and they they agreed, and that's what we created for Children of Doom. I see. And then a little bit later on, you started. You worked again with George on Diary of the Dead. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. Well, George and I had been pitching a lot of shows around town. We kept trying to revive the idea of an anthology series. Couldn't do it. Now, of course, that's you know, <laughs> we were I guess ahead of the time. Um, he had a brilliant adaptation of uh, Dracula which we were going to do as an ABC uh, primetime four-hour special. Um, it, was, it was great script. It was very true to, to, uh, to the book. Um, and we were going to do that. Um, we had a lot of different things that we were doing. And, and uh, George's partner at the time, Peter Grunwald, found a, a, a production a producer that wanted to finance another zombie movie and that became diary of the dead. So we, you know, we collaborated on that. Um, basically I was there as a sounding board, you know, right. uh, with Peter and George, uh, as George was writing it. And, and then of course I went up as one of the co-producers or executive, I can't remember what they called me, but, uh, so right. I was there for the production. Right, right, right. And then you, you mentioned earlier on, uh, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. How did you, did you get involved in that? Well, um, there was a producer named Jorge Saralegi, whom I liked very much and had pitched many times over the years he, when he was a studio executive. And um, I had read that Clive had put together a company with Jorge to take his book of, Books of Blood short stories and turn them into movies. And um, of course, I had read all of Clive's stuff and loved all of Clive's stuff. And uh, Disney had actually hired me at one point to adapt his Aberat novels. And um, so I had started to work with Clive and I did an adaptation. Unfortunately, management changes and, you know, the old story um, that never got made. Um, I still love those novels and I and his paintings, if you've seen them, are just phenomenal. That began my relationship with Clive. And so when I read that he was going to do this series of Books of Blood, I called Jorge and I said, I want to I want to be in on this. And he said, OK, well, we're starting to have some of the scripts written. Uh, what would you like to do? And a couple of the stories that I liked were had already been taken. And I said, well, look, how about this? Why don't we take. Um, there are, I think there are, uh, let's see, I have them here. I think there are three or there, there are two major books of blood collections. And the first one opens, uh, with a, with a, a story called books of blood. And mm. it is the story of, of how, uh, he came to be. And then there's the end called Jerusalem's on Jerusalem street, which is kind of the wrap up. Yeah. And I said, why don't we do a movie? that is about that, how the books of blood actually became uh, real, um, mm. how Simon became the vehicle for all these stories to be written on him, and then how those stories were collected and then brought out into the world. And Clive and Jorge loved that idea, so I wrote the script. So I took the two short stories that were at the beginning of Books of Blood and at the end of Books right. of Blood and made what is now known as Clive Barker's Book of Blood. I see. And you managed to involve both Doug and Simon. Pardon me? You managed to involve both uh, Doug Bradley and Simon. Oh, and Doug and Simon, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, you couldn't do uh, a Clive Barker movie in the UK without getting both <laughs> those guys. <laughs> yeah, Doug was fantastic because he came up and did uh, just a bit in... in uh, but it was a significant bit. Mm. Um, he plays the, uh, the, the, what would you call him? The satanic cultist that's in the, in the room, the, the yeah. upper, the, the, uh, um, the upper room of the house and uh, who kind of opens the portal at the right. beginning. 
And uh, he was fantastic. I mean, he did a he did a terrific job, and it's a really creepy scene that he's yeah. in. And then Simon came up and just did this really funny bit um, <laughs> where they're bringing the the bed, and he gets the creeps, and his friend pulls a trick on him and everything, and he gets all pissed off. So it was it was great to have them in it. Right, right, right. Yeah, I love that. I was watching it um, again last night, and it's just like, yeah, it's, it's Hellraiser. You've got the moving man bringing a bed up a flight yeah. of stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we. I had a fantastic crew on that, and I loved shooting it in Edinburgh because it mm. was just the perfect uh, background for that movie. And I had a, a terrific team, Philip Robertson, the cinematographer, and Andy... Um, uh, Andy Harris, the production designer, uh, just really got what I was trying to do. And right. um, so we ended up with, uh, and we had a great cast. Um, it's kind of a slow burn movie, you know, it's not mm. a huge bore fest, but to me, that's the kind of horror that I love. Really the stuff that gets into your head. Yeah. And the whole thing about books of blood was, um, you know, Simon was basically perpetrating a fraud on Mary through the, through the movie and basically pulling these pranks to make her think that he had these powers. Mm. But in fact he did. <laughs> and he, you know, as Clive says in the story, don't mock the dead because yeah. they have stories to tell and uh, they, they will tell them. And of course that he ends up on the floor being scribbled on <laughs> <laughs> the um you mentioned the fact that the couple of the stories that you would have you'd originally wanted to write uh and, and make a film out of were already taken can you remember which two you'd originally hoped to do um well dread was one midnight me train was another um uh i'd have to i i can't remember the title um there was one that I was, uh, it was just, and it was really too big for our budgets to do. Um, I'll have to, I'll have to get back to you. On is, that. Is, is this the one, is this in the hills, the cities? In the hills and the cities, they pitched me at one point. And oh, I really, I, yeah. And I, 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 I just didn't, I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't see how I could do it as a small, low budget. Yeah. Film. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh man, I have to pull this out. Now you've got me going here. Um, Sorry, <laughs> the one about the the woman and the the whole sex change thing, and she's down in the in the basement. Jacqueline S. That's it. Jacqueline S. Jacqueline S. That yeah. could have been really fantastic, but yeah, I just didn't feel I, I. You know, it's that's a tough one, boy. That's a real tough story. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was bringing up my my copies of the books of blood. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the cover where he's got she's got it's almost like a Marilyn Monroe seven year itch, um, because of course in the UK they were published as six volumes as six paperbacks originally, and Clive did the, yeah. uh, illustrations. Uh, to the, the other uh, one that I loved of Clive's, which wasn't a book of blood, but which uh, my wife loved and kept telling me I should really try and figure out how to do, is Cold Heart Canyon. Ah, which is a really creepy book. Yeah, familiar with that one, but it's uh, it's set in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, it's a haunted mansion story, uh, but it's uh, not unlike. I mean, it's not like any haunted house story you've ever read. You know, it's mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You um, just going back to George. Um, uh, a little bit. What, um, obviously, we lost him in 2017, and yeah. you, you've been supporting the George A. Romero Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering, there's two questions, really. What do you miss most about working with George? Oh, well, there's actually two parts to that. Um, what I miss about working with him uh, was just watching him, uh, how he put together a scene. Um, he is, uh, I, I, I guess if anybody was being analytical about it, his style and mine are, are different in, in many ways, but I learned so much from him, uh, just watching him 
approach material. Um, and one thing I always envied uh, was that he, he found a way to mix humor and horror in a way that I've never been able to quite pull off. Um, so, I, and partly that's just because of who he was. I mean, he and I would be, we'd be laughing constantly through production. You know, we would do these things and just say, can you believe that we're getting paid to do this stuff? Um, and so I, I miss just the filmmaking of it because right. George, and I learned this specifically from him, George was such a, a stickler for detail and backstory. And it didn't matter if it was in the script, but he said, if I don't know, I can't tell the audience what's happening. So it may never end up in the script. It may never end up in dialogue. It may never end up in any way uh, part of the narrative. But I have to know where people are coming from and why they're feeling this way, what they're doing. And so he really understood psychology. So it's not enough to just have a scare or a jump or a piece of gore. There has to be a reason why. Where did it come from? Um, this was definitely part of George's methodology. And we would talk endlessly uh, about, well, why would he do that? Why is this happening? Well, that doesn't make logic. I mean, he was a real, uh, he was really anal about story logic. You know, you can't just jump in there and do that. It has to have been preceded by something. Even if the audience never sees it or knows it, we have to know it. So I learned that and I miss... I miss that, those kinds of conversations. But the other thing I miss really is just him as a person because we used to have so much fun um, watching movies, talking about movies, drinking scotch, staying up all night, just, I mean, laughing our asses off. Um, just miss that very much. Right, right, right. And, and I mentioned the George A. Romero Foundation. Uh, yeah. How's, how's that going? Oh, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Suzanne, uh, his widow, Suzanne de Roche, is, uh, has definitely uh, pushed this thing forward. We've got great partners at the University of Pittsburgh, um, where the archives is and where we're uh, starting all these new initiatives. Um, there's so much exciting stuff going on. And it, we're really at the just the early stages. We took an old film of George's called The Amusement Park. Um, that he had done as a, as a paying gig, but mm. it's so unique because essentially uh, it's a, it's a, uh, what we used to call industrial movie. It's, it's, it's something that was done on hire for uh, a particular organization in this case, right. uh, a, a church organization that wanted a, a, a film about what it, the troubles and perils of aging. Right. Yes. Of course, instead of just doing a documentary, what George did was he created a horror movie about what happens when you yes. get old. Yeah, I've seen it because uh, we had Suzanne on the show a, a couple of weeks back. And, yeah, uh, and so she shepherded that through um, its restoration and its sale. Um, and it's great. Shudder has got it now, and it's going to be internationally distributed. We've got several other old things out of the archives that we'll restore. And then there are these initiatives uh, like some film festivals and um, uh, for young filmmakers and um, uh, other things that we're doing. Um, it's, it's really blossomed into quite a thing and there's a lot of great stuff coming. Brilliant. Brilliant. Oh, it's really exciting. You talking about Shadow a few moments ago. And of course, today is the, sees the release of season two of creep show i think there's yep. one episode out already um, over exactly. in the uk um but you did four you directed four episodes on the uh on the first season yeah well it's interesting because um the way greg nicotero the executive producer uh has organized this um it's an anthology series with two stories in each hour so um each each story is, you know, depending on the type of story, can be anywhere from 20 minutes to 30 minutes or whatever. And two of them go into an hour. So uh, when I went down to do the first season, Greg and I have known each other for, you know, going all the way back to Day of the Dead. Right. And his, that's his initial uh, relationship with George. 
And then he founded K and BFX with, uh, uh, with his partners, Howard Berger and Bob Kurtzman. And, and that has become, you know, this yeah. phenomenal company, uh, all these major movies. And then he became involved in walking dead and, um, has become the executive producer of that. And uh, Shutter came to him and wanted to revive Creepshow. And he sold them on the idea of doing two stories in every hour, which is really terrific. So when I went down there for the first season, uh, I had two stories I was going to do. And then he asked me to stay on and do two more. Um, and so, yeah, in the first season, um, I did two episodes, but four stories. Right. Right. Um, whereabouts was it? You, you talk about going down there. Whereabouts were you filming? Oh, Atlanta. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Okay. In Atlanta, Georgia. Georgia right. is uh, kind of like the uh, Hollywood East. Um, it's got great tax credits, which are uh, terrific for producers. And so uh, there's an enormous amount of production going on down there. And they also have fabulous facilities down there. Um, they have a, a huge, uh, several huge uh production studios there um, because of all the production, there's an incredible talent pool there. So it's a, it's a really good place to work. Right, right, right. And how many episodes have you got in season two or how many um, segments? In, in season two, um, I'm doing one uh, with two, two episodes. Unfortunately, one of those episodes probably will not air. It got caught up in a, a bit of a, a bit of a scandal. <laughs> And I'm not <coughs> talking out of turn here because right. it's completely public knowledge, but we had Marilyn Manson as the star ah. and he's had some, uh, some yes. difficulties. So we yeah. are not airing that episode. Unfortunately, it's a shame because it was a really good one. If I do say so myself and the actors, the other actors in it were just fantastic. Right. Uh, but the other story I did uh, within the walls of madness, John Esposito wrote, and that one turned out great. I don't know in which order they're airing this year. Right. I just got back from doing season three and had a couple of really great ones for that, which will be out later in the, later in the year. Oh, cool. Oh, so cool. It's, it's wonderful to kind of go back, circle back and kind of go back to my roots as it were. Yeah. yeah and I have to say, I was, I, I was watching the first season this morning and the one with the doll's house is still creeping me out. <laughs> Yeah, that's the one Josh Mallerman wrote. Yeah, that's a that's a creepy one, all right. Yeah. Um, I was really scared of that one. Uh, Greg said, no, no, man, it'll be good. It'll be great. Um, and I'm going to give you this actress that you'll love. And he was right. She, the little girl was phenomenal. I mean, she just had this preternatural ability to to get where I wanted her to go. And then, of course, we were lucky and found the dollhouse that's in the show at a, at a dollhouse store. Oh, wow. Way out in Georgia somewhere. And, um, when I, when the, uh, the props people took me to see it, I thought oh, this will work. And it had all kinds of neat places we could move around in. And so I, yeah, I love that yeah. story. Too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, I was really admiring of the furniture in the doll's house and the <laughs> extraordinary detail in them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Amazing stuff. Um, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. I've got a few more questions for you, but you were talking earlier on and you mentioned you're now doing a podcast. Yeah, well, this is another interesting story and it kind of goes back to George. Um, Chris Jenkins, who is this Oscar winning sound mixer, was the person who mixed Creepshow. And we met him when we went out to Los Angeles and we all became friends and he really loved George and our work. And he and I have stayed friends over the years. And um, he called me up about a year ago and he said, hey, look, I'm working with this company now, uh, Universal Music Group. And the producer and I have been talking and they need a writer for this new podcast they're doing. It's called Sounds Scary. And it's a, an anthology series, a horror podcast, which features all of the talent in the Universal Music Group's uh, stable. So here I am writing horror stories for 20 something rappers <laughs> and they star in it. And it's turned out that they're pretty good. They're performers anyway. Right. Right. Uh, but they uh, it's theater of the mind. This is what's great about it. Nick. It's like uh, uh, it's radio drama. It's all told with sound 
and creepy atmosphere. And um, so I've done, we're going to do a full season of eight. They'll drop sometime in the fall. Uh, we're in production on them now. And I've written six and uh, two more to go. And um, it's really fun. It's a challenge because I can't rely on visuals. I have to figure out a way to tell this story with sound. But we're also going to mix them in a way that's going to be totally immersive. So when you have your headsets on, you're going to be completely in these environments. And hopefully it'll be scary as hell. (laughs) Well, it's fascinating. Um, the Guardian newspaper over here, I think it was literally just the last couple of days, did an article saying how popular scary podcasts have become yes. over lockdown. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they're talking about hauntings and, and, and so on. An extraordinary. Yeah. It, it, There's some really, really good ones out there. There's some really good ones out there. And I hope this one becomes, I think our, the team that they put together around this are fantastic. So I'm really looking forward to hearing how this goes and, and right. who knows, maybe it'll lead to some other ones, but I think it's another storytelling uh, platform mm. that can be really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. The thoughts are sitting in the dark. I mean, I remember listening to things like the price of fear, the half hour episodes and, and, yes. and it's just just sit there nothing else going on just close your eyes and just listen to and, what, and get taken away yeah completely and utterly it's um, the theater of the mind you have to use your imagination it's yeah. great yeah 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 so i'd just like to end with my usual luggage in the crypt questions if i may um sure. so what film would you take away with you you mean if I had to go somewhere yeah. and never have another movie to watch? Yeah. Well, um, I don't know that it would be a horror movie. Um, uh, I, I don't know. That might be too depressing. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that would be. I'd probably, I mean, look, uh, I'll admit that my favorite movie of all time is Lawrence of Arabia. So um, ah. I would probably take that with me. Right. Um, right. If I had no other choice. Right. I mean, there are so many of them. I, I have to be honest. I, I, I really shudder at questions like this because I, I would never want to be put in that position. And I would probably just throw up my hands and say, I'm not taking anything. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make a choice. I know. I, I, most of my guests have been very good at playing, uh, you know, playing this game with me. And I do feel sorry because it's an unfair question. Obviously, it's a totally I would probably question. take Creep Show. <laughs> the original Creep Show. Right it's fun there's some really good for you know but i i get lawrence i'll have to double check but i think somebody else may have chosen this as well um yeah it's um it was uh, i was just reading uh kevin brownlow's book about uh the production of that the lean book i mean lean is just you know he's in my pantheon yeah. and uh it yeah. was uh i have the the director's cut and finally i have a a a big enough screen that's worth shooting. It's funny in Dune. I'll tell this little story. Um, I had a, I had a VHS and of course, working with Vittorio, he was like, Oh, John, we cannot watch it like that in this tiny little hotel television. And I said, yeah, but Vittorio, we got to watch a little of it, you know, because I was using it for inspiration and the attack on Aqaba is the, uh, I, I, I was saying to my second unit guys and everything else, look, we got to do stuff like this. So we did, and Vittorio cooked pasta and had this, you know, we had wine and pasta. We were sitting around one night. Oh, okay, John, we'll watch a little of it. And, of course, we ended up four hours later. We're sitting there like half in the bag. We watched the whole damn movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it was on this tiny little screen. It was crappy visuals. You know, I could just feel Vittorio cringing next to me as he was looking at the colors. He kept getting up and trying to tweak the set. And it was was Oh, yes. The good old days. Yeah. 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 What about a book? What about a book? Oh my God. Um, now you really got me. Um, I'm a huge fan of Le Carre um, and John Le Carre. Um, right. I would probably take something of his maybe. God, I don't know. Um, maybe something of Steve King's. Um Again, I, I, I don't know how I would do that. I don't know what I would do. No. Um, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. That's a really tough one. Um, I read a lot. Um, I've got, uh, you know, 
too many books um, and I can never get rid of them. Right. So that would be, that would be almost harder. I'd probably. <laughs> okay. I can now see you having a, this, this wonderful crypt, which is just basically a library. Um, yeah. Yeah. Would, yeah. Yeah. You'd be happy in that. What about an album? Wow, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is so mean. I'm sorry. This is, I would have to say it'll be a compilation album. <laughs> okay. okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. It'll have uh, Firebird Suite by Stravinsky with the Seventh Symphony of Beethoven, some of Bill Evans' jazz, uh, Coltrane's uh, The Wise One, um, and uh, then a number of uh, Roy Buchanan cuts. That is a great playlist. That is a, yes, that is a great playlist. And I would still be unsatisfied. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have to have Mahler's Resurrection Symphony in there too. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that is a great. Yeah, that is a great playlist. I, I think yes. I remember once being asked to put together a playlist for a film convention I was doing, and it's just like I started with um, the Muppets and went <laughs> through. <it. laughs> I kind of went, but yeah, starting off with that. Um, what about a favorite food or drink? Oh, well, scotch. Oh, okay. Yeah, single malt, I guess. And uh, there's, t although uh, Johnny Walker would be just fine if I couldn't get anything else. Um, uh, yeah, definitely scotch. Right. Um, maybe uh, maybe some Bombay gin if I couldn't get scotch. Ah. Uh, but um, as far as food, my partner, Pat Booba's mother, Angie Booba made what she called Easter pies and they're like big calzones. And um, we called them pepperoni pies, but they are egg and cheese and pepperoni. And I mean, it's, it's like the food of the gods. It is the most perfect food. She only made it once a year until I came along. And then I, I loved it so much. She would make it more often, but my wife, Leslie Chapman has uh, was the only person that Angie would give the recipe to. And um, so uh, it's really hard to describe because it's not something everybody else in the world will know about, although they should. Um, but my wife has been able to duplicate Angie's recipe. And uh, if I could only have one food, I can tell you definitively, it would be uh, Angie Booba's Easter pies. I would, if I were on an island, couldn't eat anything else for the rest of my life. I would eat that. It's the perfect food. It's got all the food groups. <laughs> <laughs> it tastes fantastic. You can eat it hot or cold. <laughs> um, and they're big. You can't eat one. Well, you could eat one. And I have eaten one at one sitting. But uh, you get two or three meals out of them. It's, oh, God. If I had a picture, you'd know what I was talking right, about. Right, right. And you say calzone, which is basically pizza folded in half. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a little more sophisticated than that. And it's, right. and it's really labor intensive. My wife, when she makes them, it takes her, you know, days to cut right. all they have to, things have to be cut a certain way. You have to have certain ingredients that have to be specific brands that can only be that if you don't use that. And for example, you have to use Crisco lard to, to make the, to make the, 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 the right. crust. If you, if you don't, um, it won't taste the same. It has right. to be the way right. Right. Angie and her Italian forebears made it. Ah, ah, oh, it sounds delicious. And oh. yeah, we've got Easter coming up, so hopefully <laughs> <laughs> you may get one. Somewhere. What about a piece of visual art, painting, sculpture? <clears throat> well, that's hard to say too. Um, you know, recently I've been really um, taken, I don't know that I would want this to be the only thing that I could have, but I've been recently taken with uh, uh, Francis Bacon's work and Lucian Freud's work. Oh. Uh, I also am really into this Polish artist named Beksinski. Um, very, um, you could call it surreal, but it's much more than that. Um, very disturbing stuff in a way, but it's imagery that is very complex. Um, but I suppose that probably wouldn't 
that would probably depress me if I had mm -hmm. that to look at mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Uh, my go-to artist is Goya. So it would probably be something of Goya's that, you know, I have the 3rd of May print back there. Right, right, um, right. It would be something of, uh, something of his, probably. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, again, what am I, an idiot? You know, <laughs> I, I not take a Caravaggio or a Rembrandt or what, some kind of Picasso or uh, – <laughs> How can I make that choice? I know, I know, but it's it's, it's curious. It's just kind of <laughs> hearing what first comes to people's minds. I always find absolutely fascinating, and I I, I get the guy, and I also see what you mean by about um, Lucian Freud, uh, etc. And Francis Bacon might be depressing. Um, yeah, Bacon is. Uh, he, I just watched a documentary about him, and um, he was quite an interesting character. But his his work is so powerful. I mean, it's yeah. so it's disturbing to many yes. people. Yeah, no, I, I I remember doing a tour at the um, Tate at the Tate. Yeah, yeah, and being shown one and explained that this is obviously his boyfriend being sat, found sat on the loo. Right. Um, and right. the, of course, there's a great film with uh, Derek Jacobi and Daniel Craig. Um, really? Yes. Can't even remember. What's this? I haven't heard this. Um, it's very, it's, uh, I, I will, I will, after the, after I've done this, I will find the title and for our watch as yeah. I will put in a, a note, a, the, uh, uh, Daniel Craig, I've got something like Rage of the Devil or something like that. I, I, I will find the title. I will lean, I've got your email. I shall send it to you. Um, and then lastly, a luxury. What luxury could you not do without? Oh, <clears throat> Well, this is going to sound really corny, <laughs> but my wife, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I suppose people wouldn't say that's a luxury, uh, but that's a uh, uh, you know, yeah, she's practical. I'm sure she's very yeah, practical. To, yeah. So, um, and it sort of fulfills all the necessary requirements of creature comfort and contentment and uh, safety and blah, blah, blah. I think it's a wonderful choice. I think that she may have views, but you know, I think we'd respect those entirely. Well, like luxury, <clears throat> it, there's always problems with it. <laughs> <laughs> right? I, so hope, I so hope she's not watching this. Um, <laughs> there's always difficulty with luxury. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Getting hold of them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not going down this road. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Yeah, yeah. John, thank you so very much indeed. This has been amazing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate you having me. And My thanks again to John Harrison. What fascinating stories about George Romero. Join me next week on The Chattering Hour when I'm talking with veteran actor Monty Markham. Until then, be safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright Tea Time Productions. Mm -hmm.